0: Welcome everybody to another episode of Float Your Boat and I'm glad to be back in the cauldron, buddy boy. George. I'm back. I'm back in the uh, hot seat, the cauldron, the uh, the what?
1: arena. I thought that's where you went into no, the I'm hot seat. No, I'm actually in the pavilion. Wink wink. What? Matt.
0: What?
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> the hot seat, you know. That's <laughs> Uh, let, so, Breddy Boy... On the edge of
0: the cliff, because oh, they're back it, on harder, Let's right? not talk about where I, where I was in the last couple of weeks. Okay. But, but Breddy Boy, who do we have on today?
1: Oh, do you want to roll straight into her? I thought we were going to have a little chat, but we won't.
0: Okay. Oh, well, we could... Okay, let's have a little chat, Brett.
1: What do you want to chat about, George? See, there you go. So,
0: let's talk about, <laughs> let's talk about our
1: next guest. Tessa Lunny. I think it's Lunny. Mm, is, Lunny. That, is that how you would yes, pronounce it? Yes, Miss Lunny, yes. She is a novelist. A poet, an occasional academic.
0: Yes, quite an academic, but more she, importantly... She is. ...more importantly, what's her favourite pastime?
1: Swing dancing, George. Swing dance. Swing
0: dancing. Well, I got me a baby and I won't be late. Put her up in my hate. I down... So is she... I, Not sw- swing... I'm guessing, I'm guessing she's going to turn up looking like Mark did. Mark Rondell, yes. Mark Rondell. Rock and roller. Looking the part, yeah?
1: Yeah, because it's not looking the part.
0: I guess it's it's that's their lifestyle. That's how they they. Li- I mean, they I find it incredible that there are people that that you know tune themselves to the 1950s look, and th- and they do it so well. Like you know, there's you know that there there, there are whole industries dedicated to supplying these people with clothing. The well, look. <laughs> there actually isn't because they use they're actually wearing clothes
1: from the 1950s. So, I mean, there are brands that do do retro clothing, but I don't think the true authentic um, followers of the 50s would wear new stuff. They'll wear. They'll only wear the original stuff. Right. So it really is... When we uh, interviewed Mark, he said he loves it because that era was such a great romantic era. And I sort of went, oh, yeah, I get that. Um, but... Yeah, they really do. They live that lifestyle, and um, I—it must be a, a fairly—you'd uh, have to spend a bit of time.
0: You, you would have to tracking
1: down stuff to wear, and
0: I mean, I'm a bit—I'm hmm. a bit cynical about memories because you know we tend to remember all the good things and and uh, and not so many of the negatives. So that's just the way that we're wired. Um, hmm. I don't know if the '50s was such a magical period. It was certainly a big. Big growth spurt globally mm. for for uh, the Western world, anyway. But was it as magical as they make up?
1: I don't know. It was a more
0: innocent time, they claim. I
1: think that that's I think that that's what it was. Um, yeah, the music was great then. Mm-hmm. You know, fifties and sixties. I think most people would agree if you're into that into rock and roll um, would be, whether. ...Halcyon days, you know. Mm. And then the 80s came along with the early punk stuff. So I think they were very important eras f- from a music point of view. Um, yeah. And and the clothing is pretty fantastic, I've got to say. I mean, you know, you'll see when Tessa walks in... ...she looks fantastic.
0: Well, I know that Tess, Tess holds down a day job. She holds down a day job. She's a young mother. She's, um, you know, an aspiring author. But she's also written her first... Novel, and it's been published.
1: That's right, and her uh, novel is called April in Paris,
2: 1921.
0: Well, why don't we get her in?
1: Let's get her in.
3: Welcome to the Float Your Boat podcast,
1: about how everyday people created their road to success. The highs, the lows, pitfalls and potholes, and how they overcame it all. And now, here are your hosts. So we've got Tessa in the studio. Hi, Tessa. Hi. Welcome, Tess.
3: Thank
1: you. You, you. You've shortened it to Tess already. You've met her two you minutes know, ago. Well, she,
0: well, well, yes, that's right. Well, I've kissed her on the cheek twice. On. Um, Opposite cheeks. Uh, okay. Very
3: continental.
0: Continental. That's right. George is a sort of continental sort of guy. Uh, I could tell. And I'm told that I should never wear horizontal stripes on a t-shirt.
3: Oh really? Why? Mm. It's what I'm wearing.
0: Because he's moment. a little no, bit. He's a bit, he's a bit. He's a bit challenged in that direction. So. so. No, so actually, I used, it's the to, I used to be a, a, a V. Now I'm <laughs> an upside down V. So I'm a little bit challenged.
1: And Mick Chance, who you know well, mm. is very on to George about his horizontal, his um, horizontal <laughs> <Really>? stripes,
0: <laughs> and your Birkenstocks. But we won't go there.
3: Do you wear them with socks, though? That is the dignity question. leakers. My I've wife,
0: my wife said to me last night, mm. I did last night because mm. I had to. I was in my no, no, I was in my bathrobe mm. and socks because I was a bit cold, mm. and I had to go and do something. So I put the Birkenstocks on Mm. and my wife said, that's a look. Are Mm. you trying to be a hipster? I said, but surely that's not a look.
3: No, it's an old continental man look. My husband is Russian, and he has a mission. No socks and sandals is what his grandfather yeah, yeah, wears, not, his father wears, every look. Russian. He mm. says no, Correct. no,
1: never, never. Yeah. I would
3: never be that man. Mm. Well, you
1: know, they say that Crocs have got the holes because that allows the dignity to seep out. You know?
0: <laughs> so that's right. It's like <laughs> it's like you know you've given up on life when you wear tartan pants. Hey, that's, no, no tartan's great. No. So I should be saying that in front of a rockabilly crew, right? You and I'm currently wearing yeah, no, a tartan you, no, skirt. You, but you're a female. I mean, a tartan pants for Are a man.
3: Phenomenal.
0: Listen, yeah.
1: when I wore my tartan jacket the other night mm. to the Awards of Excellence, which we won, of course, uh, um, er, how many people came up and said that jacket is amazing? Just about every person in the yeah.
3: room. Yeah, tartan. yeah.
2: Tartan. It was yeah. a very
1: 50s tartan. It's award-winning.
3: A yeah. oh, 50s tartan, yeah, oh, a, even better. with the
1: black velvet. The oh, lapel.
3: I'm in love with it already.
0: Yeah, I've, yeah, but it's I creature. mean, uh, looking at you, you're 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 a quintessential '50s starlet right now. I mean, you really are, straight out of the the, the glamour books. Uh, uh, thank uh, you. What's 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 going on? What's uh, this thing that you're doing?
3: Uh, I love a vintage style. Mm-hmm. I so I try and live it every day. Um, it's. Yeah, I try and live it every day. Well, so you I just are. slowly over. This the, is how
0: you're going to work, right?
3: Yeah, this is how I'm going to work. And this is
0: how you go to work every day, not in the same clothes, but similar style, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, actually, I do have a couple of tartan skirts. My office is very cold, so I wear woolen skirts and woolen jumpers and big You work at Sydney
1: boots. University. I work.
3: I do admin at Sydney University part okay. time, mm, and I so, write part time.
1: So let's go back to the start. Where mm. where do, where were you born?
3: I was born in Sydney, here, and grew up in Balmain.
0: Wow. Right. Mm. So you're a real yeah. Sydney girl. Yeah, yeah. Balmain girl? Yeah. yeah. Well, hang on. People are being born in Balmain. Now, how old are you?
3: 37. Last you week. Did you
0: ask a so woman her age? No, no, she, but she told me, so she's extremely comfortable. Okay obviously you were at the uh, at the tail end of the working class era in Balmain yes uh
3: when yeah so the decade before i was born it was moving from working class to yep. Um, it was like professional class, I mm. guess, the Balmain basket weavers that everybody's heard of. Mm-hmm. These are who the people that moved into Balmain in the 70s and were there when I was born in the 80s. By the time we left in the 90s, it was changing again to the doctors and lawyers and real estate agents, celebrities who live there now.
0: Yeah. Mm. But your parents um, decided to live in Balmain. Mm. Um, they came from somewhere else?
3: Uh, my dad grew up in... Epping. So he's a Sydney man as well, oh, but my mum's English. Right. And uh, part of when she moved to Sydney is that she always wanted to be near water. So she's lived in Bondi, near here, Balmain, Leichhardt, Avalon. Wow. Haberfield now, but always within a five or ten minute walk of... Some of Sydney's waterways. Mm. Right.
0: And does she have lily white skin like you, or does <laughs> she, or she look very tanned? And no,
3: no, she's she looks so, English. So that unlike
0: English. unlike our last guest,
1: who was born in the early '60s, like myself, mm. we talked about the '60s and mm. '70s, but you you're really an '80s girl. Ah, uh, yeah, that's when I grew. '80s
3: and up. '90s. Mm. So how
1: did you uh, get into the '50s? Mm.
3: How did I get into the '50s? Well, um, after. As a teenager going out dancing in clubs and whatnot, you know, just after I finished school, I got to a point where I didn't want to do that anymore. I'd had enough. It was too hectic and I had got bored. Uh, After about five years, I needed some other way to go out dancing and swing dancing had become very popular And my friend was doing it and so I joined and I fell in love with it. I'd already liked the clothes and I already loved jazz and so I started swing dancing and then I started swing dancing sort of up to six nights a week. But part of that scene there was a a lot of crossover between swing dancing and rockabilly in Sydney when I started about ten years ago. So I would go with Mick Chance to the rockabilly nights Mm -hmm. and do all the dances that were available. And then because you're going out, six nights a week you need six nights a week of clothing and so then you just start to collect and you start going to picnics and everybody's dressed up so beautifully and it's inspiring and it's fun costume is fun so I just slowly started replacing everything modern in my wardrobe with something with a more retro feel shall we say so yeah that's how it happened
0: I I imagine that was quite an effort I mean how You said you went out collecting. I mean you'd go out and go to presumably the most uncommon places to find bits and pieces that Mm you…
3: Not necessarily. This is just a, an op shop buy, an ordinary op shop, but it has a retro vibe.
0: Oh, our, our listeners can't actually see Oh, that right. So, Sorry, so I'm
3: talking about my tartan skirt, which has a very cinched in waist and a very pleated back. So it flares out like a 50s skirt, mm. which is uh, Fletcher Jones, which is um, an old Australian brand, mm-hmm. a well-known Australian brand yeah. of uh, Kilt skirts, I guess. Mm. So it has a it has a retro vibe, and I think is maybe. But
0: you didn't buy that new, right? Did no, you I didn't buy it that new. A, I mean, like uh, Mark was telling us, like you know, up shops and
1: retro yeah. shops. Okay. Mm. Okay. You know, well, you know, well, like now you can buy it from all over the world, can't you? You yeah. can buy something from a store in San Francisco as easy as you can buy you put, something here. As
3: long, put, as long as they have it listed online, and there are mm. places like eBay and Etsy. I found some. Great things but there are also very specific targeted things and social media like Instagram. A lot of vintage mm. sellers use Instagram and then a lot of people who are just vintage wearers when they're like, I need I've grown out of that or that's not my style anymore and then they resell their stuff through Instagram or Facebook groups and that mm. kind of thing. So you're just sort of always swapping and trading and if you like costume it's a it's a fun hobby.
0: It is. So where, where did you go to high school uh, Where where did you go to high school Fort Street You went to Fort Street and I high. did another Fortian
3: Oh who was a Fortian Oh my wife
0: George's wife uh, There you and go her cousins and
3: yeah, yeah. Just my debate. grandfather actually was a forty and his name is up on the honour boards. Was uh, he ducks? in Petersham? No, was he, he was a... wasn't ducks, but he got first in physics and chemistry. Which is very funny. He was a scientist and there's lots of scientists in our family, but my generation yeah, zero scientists. We're all So your word grandfather people. went
1: there and won that award. He'd probably know your wife then.
3: <laughs> oh, that's mean.
0: <laughs> Hopefully she won't listen to the <laughs> oh, My grandfather to just turned
3: ninety five, so Oh yeah, well, close. Oh, <laughs> He's still, still kicking. Yep. That's great. Yep.
0: Good news. Yeah. And he still dabbles, he still likes the science side of life, obviously. He still hasn't lost that. No. No. Okay. No. So brothers and sisters?
3: Two younger brothers. Yeah, oh. lawyer and a history teacher.
0: Right, oh, so, wow. Yeah. And 40s as well?
3: One brother's a 40 and the other brother is a grammar boy. That's where my mum, who's a teacher, was teaching at the time and he so he went to grammar. With so,
1: where did the love of writing come from? Because I noticed in your bio poetry, mm. writing. So, mm. is it something that you discovered at school or wh- mm. how did it come about?
3: From a love of reading really. Uh, And I was thinking about this last night. I was also very privileged to grow up in a house where reading and writing and language was always discussed. My dad loved to play with the newspaper headlines. So when I was five, asking me what it meant, and then eight, asking me to analyze the puns and then, you know, asking me to go through it and playing with them and asking me to, you know, make up my own puns and my own headlines when I get to be a teenager. My mum's a big reader and my dad writes scientific articles. But I i guess for me, it's the reading. of a love reading as soon as I could read and was a fanatical reader. And someone gave me a diary once and then I slowly started writing. I wanted to be an actress actually for a long time, from about when I was eight to, I don't know, 21. And at 21, I realised it wasn't really going to work for me. Mm-hmm. So... And after a couple of years wandering around not knowing what to do with myself, I started writing again right. in the, at the end of my English honours degree at the University of Sydney and I went, you know what, this is everything I love about acting with none of the things that I hate about it, this is going to work for me. And then I started really putting in the effort and did the two writing degrees that's in my bio. Right. So
0: Let's go back well, a little bit. So... <coughs> so what Put a made history you realize, of my life. There you go. Uh, uh, that was, that was <laughs> thank you good. for that coming was, in. Right uh, uh, thank so. you. <laughs> that was very succinct. But, uh, <laughs> what made you realise you didn't, you were not going to make a go of acting? Like uh, did you have an experience that just re- you realised, oh, that's not for me?
3: Um, not one experience. There um, were just lots of little rejections and lots of little comments that other people had given me and the fact that I was finding it not Satisfying. Mm. It had been such. It's such a rush to perform. You know, it's such a rush Mm. to perform, and it's so addictive and and wonderful. But other than that rush, I wasn't finding it intellectually satisfying. I wasn't becoming immersed in the characters in the way that I want to, and I needed to explore other ways of using language and other ways of just being who I was within the world. And acting and performing is such a consuming. Uh, pastime, if it's a pastime, is such a cons- consuming career, if that's what you're going to make your career. And I realised when I looked back at my life, I'd made none of the decisions that would make that kind of career possible. I'd made a, a heap of other decisions instinctively as what would make me happiest. And so I just looked at the fact that I was in this place that didn't really feed acting, it wasn't really m- going to make it work and went, you know what, that dream? That dream is talking about something else. You've got to get rid of it. And find what the other thing is. Hmm. It was a bit hard to come to terms with at 21, but no. Uh, but it
0: was quite. You were quite present to what was going on in your life. I mean, for yeah. you to come up with that at the age of 21 for 20, a young what? woman, yeah, 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 that, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's you
3: know. Yeah. Well, I'd done a lot of universe. I hadn't done sort of professional acting. A lot of university theatre and ATYP, Australian Theatre for Young People. So I was with lots of people who were starting to create professional careers and they were starting to get into acting schools and so I was going along to the acting school auditions and maybe getting to a second audition but not getting in mm. and when I went round to the second audition, mm. the fear of the audition and I, I just completely choked and I was so unhappy doing it. I'm like, why are you forcing yourself to do this mm. when the payoff is not even feeding you anymore. There was one particularly bad one, which was in Melbourne, and I sort of got to a second round of VCA, traveled down to Melbourne, did that. I was dreadful. It was shocking. And I was so, I was dreadful. I was shocking. It was so bad. And I was, it was everything I could do not to burst into tears. But my cousin lived in Melbourne in a flat, like an Art Deco series of flat on Flinders Lane. I was staying with her. I just went straight to her house. She opened the vodka. We got a tub of. Uh, ice cream and we sat there, (laughs) lay on her bed, drank vodka, ice, ice cream and read poetry aloud to each other until the sun went down and that was perfect. And so these kind of experiences—it's like you hate acting, but lying on the bed reading poetry with your artist cousin while drinking vodka—that's really what you love. So maybe you if should. Only
0: you could get paid for that. That's yeah. what I was going <laughs> <Finally> to say. I, <laughs> I was going to say yeah. It probably doesn't that. pay that way. Well. Uh, you haven't worked, haven't worked that out yet. Have you?
3: <laughs> and getting there. Now getting there is a slow process. It's a slow oh, are process. Are you a happy
0: poet? Because I have this idea that most poets are—you know—they're—they're they're bipolar. You know, they have their moments where they're just in really, this really dark place. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when they come up with their inspiration, their, their, best, their best I thought moment.
1: you'd be thinking about the sort of more that sort of poetry that's, you know, like Mary Morgan, you know, like <laughs> that sort of, po- that's your sort of poetry.
2: There was an old farmer who lived on a rock. He sat in the meadow.
0: So tell us, like, you know, poetry, it's it's Um, not what most people think in the modern age, it's not what most people think is a career anymore, not like it used to be, Mm. you know, in the 1800s, the early 1900s. I think it was
3: always problematic to make a career because the poets that we think of the revolutionary thinkers you know you bring out something revolutionary and society says that's not poetry because that's not what we know to be poetry yeah. and it takes a long time for people to accept free verse poetry non-rhyming things mm-hmm. poetry you know poetry about ordinary people instead of kings and queens is that really poetry so those people always struggled, but of course there've been some best-selling poets as well. Yes. The poets that I learnt from happy poets, I guess. It's a profession, so they really they really work hard at it. And um you so know do, family does, problems are a problem for them as it is for every office worker. Sure. sure. Does it
1: come easily to you like do you can you like is it like writing songs, you know, sometimes you can write a song and it can take 5 minutes, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. other times it's you know Mm. It, it, you labour over it, but usually yeah. the best ones come yes. easily. So yes. do you, how does it, how's, what's the process for you?
3: Prose is straightforward for me, writing novels. Poetry is, <coughs> is, as you say, I have to wait for the inspiration. When it comes in five minutes, it's perfect. It is as it is, needs very little editing. If I have to really labour over it, it's often not that great. And that idea should really be something else, should be another idea.
1: So when you write something now, like a, po- like a poem, do you mm. go and perform it as well?
3: No. All of my performance love is on the dance floor. Right. If I need to perform, I'll go out dancing. Then I perform for my partner, perform for everybody who's standing at the edge, listening to the band or the DJ. That's where I get that little mm. performance kick. Right. But the writing is, I write it, read it back. Publish it. I have. I have, of course, gone to poetry nights and spoken my poetry aloud, and they're super fun and they're oh. really great. But I have a, a one and a half year old daughter, so poetry nights tend to be at exactly dinner and bedtime, so I don't go. <laughs>
0: Okay. Right. Well, you know, she'll be experiencing a lot of poetry nights, <laughs> won't she? <laughs> she will. Yeah. Well, she'll she be will. getting lots of stories. Yeah. obviously. Lots of stories. Lots of Heaps story. of stories. So, so. Where, where do you publish your work then? Uh, if if um, you, you, do you have an online? You have an online uh, presence, obviously.
3: Uh, yeah, I have a I have a website and a blog, yeah. but most of my um, work on that has actually been published elsewhere in literary journals and That's literary fantastic. websites. Yeah. Thank you. So we're hanging out with...
1: I was, just, I was just going to say, if you, have you got something you could perform for us?
3: So this is a poem that was selected for Best Australian Poems
1: 2014. Fantastic. Uh,
3: edited by Jeff Page. Okay. It's part of a, a Sarajevo triptych called A Heart-Shaped Land, but this final section is called 1992. The central library, full of Hebrew, Christian, and Islamic books, was bombed. The pages exploded far into the sky. For days, the citizens were brushing their forefathers' thoughts off their shoulders.
0: That, that, that's well. That, <laughs> that, that ties speechless. the heartstrings.
3: Ah, thank you. I visited Sarajevo as well um, when I was researching my doctorate. So you did.
2: Hmm. I actually wrote this poem
3: many, many years beforehand, but but then I went afterwards to visit it as I, when the war was going on, I was, uh, you know, early teen watching it on TV and I couldn't, living in Sydney and knowing Sydney, I couldn't understand how the siege of Sarajevo could happen. And then when I went there, I saw how the whole city was in a bowl essentially surrounded by mountains with one little river i'm like this is a city that is almost made to be besieged Mm -hmm. because it's so easy for people to just go up into the hills and look down and yeah i had a lot of admiration for the sarayavans having lived through that and Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. still having their coffee and going about their life on the other side
0: it's It's one of those remarkable features of people who are you know find themselves in the midst of a conflict Mm. They have a remarkable ability to try and just create normalcy Mm -mm. out of these extraordinary circumstances. They still Mm. go about their business.
2: Mm.
0: Um, Remarkable. Your doctorate, Mm. you were there researching your doctorate. Yes. So I did a
3: creative doctorate at the University of Western Sydney uh, looking at silence in Australian war fiction. So I wrote mostly a novel but also a critical essay looking at How looking at how war stories were told, really, especially looking around what was incommunicable about the war experience, what couldn't be said and why it couldn't be said, why people chose not to say it. And I looked particularly at professional writers dealing with these kind of issues. So I did read a lot of what I call veteran writers, so soldiers who became professional writers or soldiers who wrote their memoir. Mm -hmm. And then I looked at how these type of these type of uh, books were used by writers who'd never been to war, but were, as I said, professional writers like David Malouf and mm. and um, Brenda Walker, and how they would use the war experience or use these other um, stories to tell their own story in a different way with a different perspective. Hmm. And the book that I was writing had a a photojournalist character in it who had, who was loosely based on Tim Page, the war photographer. Yep, yep. So his career started in Vietnam and then he went through uh, the Middle East and the Balkan War and Rwanda and Afghanistan, which is where everything sort of comes to a head. That was my doctoral project. Yeah. That is, yeah thats
1: it's, it's amazing. It's fascinating.
3: Thanks. I didn't get to go to Afghanistan, but thankfully I didn't need to. But it was good to go. I'm glad to, you
0: didn't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> stood <just put> out? It's <laughs> a little bit yes. odd. Yes. Well, I
3: would have worn a headscarf, obviously. Yeah. It's a very dusty place as well. So. <laughs> so do we mm. want to
1: talk about swing dancing on a lighter note?
3: Oh, yeah. Let's talk about well, dancing. Well, that was my. I have what? to say that was my relief from you know reading a lot about war and soldiers and obviously the
0: the trauma and death. Obviously, that's the way you got your jollies. Yeah. Like, you know, to yeah to to just swing
3: yeah that's because <coughs> <yes?
0: laughs> over over the over swing dance, dance. Swin,
3: sorry
1: that's what so you that, wish you would uh, were doing George uh, but I let's move on I just
2: realised
1: <laughs> so, what I said so <laughs> we've we've actually interviewed a, a few people about yeah. like remember which was surprising another author mm. who also does Catherine swing dance Catherine Fox who and, that, and she said she's the same a crime thing. writer
3: yeah right
1: and she does swing dancing but not in not I think she does more ballroom swing sort of oh, stuff. Oh, okay, right. So I think she does a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, and then, of course, Mark, rockin' Mark Rondo. Um, not that he dances as much as DJs, mm. but, you know, uh, who else have we interviewed over the well, three you series? of do swing,
0: don't you? And, uh, I'm not and, very good.
1: And, and Mickey Mick? Mick shows me, Mick says, don't move, just stand there, let the girl do all the work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's that's Mick. That's me. If you... Yeah, you know Mick well. <laughs> so your friend introduced you to swing dancing, and mm. you you fell in love with it. But mm. uh, I didn't. I don't recall a big swing movement, uh, swing dance movement back in the nineties.
3: No, it wasn't the nineties. It was this was ten years ago. So it was like two thousand and nine. Oh yeah. So just when sort mm. of there was a people had been swing dancing for. You know, a swing dancing revival started in mm. the '90s in America, and then moved into Australia in the early 2000s in Melbourne, then moved to Sydney. But when I joined in about 2009, um, it was also just at the time when the hipster vintage sort of fashion things started to take off as well. So all things vintage were much more visible than I had previously found them. And so there were a few schools in Sydney that were doing some really great classes, so I just went to the one that was most convenient for me. And
0: So, listeners, just remember, if you like Float Your Boat, go and review us on whichever app you're using at the moment, whether it be...
1: On your Android or your iPhone?
0: Yes, and be sure to review, uh, find the review tag... Yep. And
1: Click on that and write a nice review or yes. and subscribe yes. because all of that goes into pushing us up the rankings a little bit more so we can spread the love of Float Your Boat out there to the real world. And apart from all that,
0: we really would appreciate it.
1: We would. We appreciate all of that stuff. And and if you've got somebody that you think would be great for us to interview, um, email us at fybpodcast at gmail.com. Terrific.
0: Thank you. We're talking about swing dance. Does that that involve the the old, the big bands of the past like Glenn
2: Glenn Miller?
0: Sometimes. Sometimes. Does does he precede? So actually, yeah, you have but to define it, it, don't you? Because it's there's rockabilly, there's yeah, swing it, and can there's... You can, mm. you can you define it a little bit better for me? For yeah, pe- of course. For people who don't understand? Of course.
3: Well, Brett's talking a lot about rockabilly. When I started dancing almost 10 years ago, the rockabilly and swing scenes, there's a lot more crossover, a lot more mm. nights that played both types of music. But now I find that they're much more separated, partly because swing dancing in Sydney but across the the world has become much more popular. So you have a uh, rockabilly nights that play 50s rock and roll s- style music, sometimes from the late 40s up to the early 60s, that period, whereas the swing dancing nights play jazz, 30s, 40s, sometimes early 50s but 30s, 40s jazz. And there are a lot of different jazz nights in the city and some of them have these big band styles, Dan Barnett, Um, Mm, who's just fabulous musician and Andrew Dickinson band and they're just super great and things that have been going for a very long time like the Unity Hall in Balmain used to have a jazz band and now that's moved upstairs to the workers bar but it's in the same corner on Darling Street in Balmain and you can go every Sunday three o'clock it's a lovely dance floor you have a sweet Sunday afternoon dance so there's a lot of they're 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 now different scenes, and I think hmm. they maybe their fortunes are moving yeah, differently. Right, yeah, So <coughs> so yeah, I yeah I they dance sort both. of yeah
1: I never thought about it. They've sort of split.
3: I, and I dance both, and between the two, there's always something great. Yeah.
1: Yeah, right. So yeah, so Dan Barnett, you've met because he's our trombone player. That's right. I've met him. He's so great. <laughs> he is. He's I love it when t- he
3: plays his shell. I'm like, Oh, he plays <laughs> a shell. <laughs> so, he plays a
1: shell. Yeah, he's a very yeah. talented
0: boy, Dan. Yeah, right. Young man. Well, yeah, yeah. he's not so young so, anymore. But, but you're, you're um, okay, so you're, you work full time.
3: I have two sort of part-time jobs. I have a part-time job and a... Then and a part-time I, job. And another part-time job, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, I'm assuming that, that equates to, uh, uh, you know...
3: Five days a week, yeah.
0: Yeah, five days a week. You're a mother. Mm-hmm. You do swing dancing. Mm-hmm. Okay, once a week.
3: Once a fortnight at the moment,
0: but... Yet you found time to write a book.
3: Well, that's the two days a week.
0: That's your part-time job? That's the other part-time job. Oh, okay. So that's how you found the time. You just dedicated two days a week to... Yes. And it was with military precision. You never took a day off. You never, no, you didn't go, you you know, it's like... um, like uh, you know when you feel stressed before a big activity like an exam you will go and clean the fridge or yeah, do the right. washing, iron the clothes you know mop I'm not the floor. a am
3: not a procrastinator like that Right okay I but I So
0: you approached it with like firm in, in, intent
3: I, I approached it like a job Okay so what
0: was your style
3: of Well of your, what practice. was your, your
0: of management
3: Style of management um so I was very privileged to do the masters and then the doctorate in creative writing and so I got to manage my time in the creative writing doctorate because I had a scholarship so that was my full-time job was just to sit and read and write Uh, and that's where I found my best ways of working so after the scholarship and the degree ended I and it's what I still do I get up in the morning and I write first thing in the morning sort of around dawn between six and eight and that's when I do my best work I actually have a long list of ideas that I'm just slowly working through. Where do I get them from? I get them from my reading is essentially it. Yeah, and how a, do you
0: log them in, in, a, in a way that you don't forget them? Like do you just have a, a notepad or...? You know?
3: I've, I've everything. I've got notes on my phone. I've got notes in my Dropbox. I've got bits of paper. I've got little post-it notes in various things. I've got my library at home is in sections. This is for the World War Two book. This is for your 1920s books. This is for your World War One book. This is... And then I just write down ideas as they come. It's happened ever since school that if I'm really working hard and involved with one piece of work I'll my brain will be firing on all cylinders and I'll get ideas for something else at the same time. It always happened cramming for exams. I'm like, you need to write this, you need to write this. And so I've got one part of my brain focusing on, say, the doctorate and the other part writing ideas for short stories or one part of my brain totally focusing on work and the other part's like, make sure you write these poems, you should do this and this and this and this or this is how you're going to solve the next part of your novel or something that's always happened to me and then I just keep them because a lot of my... Ideas are for novels. They take a long time. They I take do. a long time to write. And as I'm writing one, I can think about the other. Or so that I've written a 1920s. A book set in the 1920s. But a lot of that research will also relate to World War Two or World War One, which are my other ideas. And so I can, you know, I can just take 20% of my research and put it in another part of my brain.
1: So, hmm. so it strikes me as is really you're a writer's writer. You know, like, not like you say, George or I, that we decide, okay, I'm going to write a book about whatever. Yeah. You've actually, it's almost like your whole life's been leading to becoming a writer.
3: Perhaps it has.
1: But That's that's how it sounds to me, because you you've done a doctorate, you've written books, you've written poetry, mm. you've worked as a as a writer reader, you know, yeah. it's like it's all around that your whole world, yeah. Um, yeah, and then your breakaway is the, is dancing, but mm. where, where to next? What's more next? Books. More books, more <laughs> So, I noticed that, um, on your bio, you're, you're with HarperCollins, <laughs> right? That's right, so that's good.
3: That's great. Is that
1: good? You, you it's great,
0: great uh, deal, yeah. It's wonderful. It's, it's I actually, I have be... um,
3: two, I was very lucky, I have two publishing deals with this. Novel, Collins Australia, New Zealand for world rights excluding oh, right. America and then Pegasus Books <clears> for <throat> the American market.
0: You're allowed to plug the novel, by the way. You said this We're going we'll to talk let's get to that. Was
3: just, it was just the flow I mean, of the I, language I, I was going to say and it's...
0: I've got to say I am impressed by, by writers that they, they can, you know, they can just wake up in the morning, like you said, and just launch straight into mm. tap, 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 tap on the keyboard and, mm. and they push out several pages in... A couple of hours I suppose mm. yeah I mean did you ever did you ever um experience what what some people call writer's block
3: yes I guess so but I I guess so sometimes you sit down and and it's like this is this is rubbish you're forcing it everything mm. you write is a cliche you've got cardboard cutouts you can't see it in my mind in which case is just you just have to stop.
0: So you do have those Come back the moments next day. You, oh, all the yeah. time. Okay. And
3: when I was pregnant, I could barely do anything, about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, and then my brain would just wander away somewhere <laughs> else. I'm like, just go watch television. You just can't do, can't do it at all. So this April in Paris, 1921, the books that has just been published, I'd written about half of it um, before my daughter was born and then... When she was born, in sort of a couple of months afterwards, I'm like, right, I can get back into it now and completely like tore it apart, went, no, this is, no, no, you've got that wrong, got that wrong, got that wrong. So yeah, I had this huge writer's block <laughs> called my pregnancy. Yeah, and yeah. then when I came back, I'm like, okay, now you can see it. But in some ways it was, the, the blocks are useful. When something isn't working or when something fails, it's useful, because you can see you know what you're trying to do and you can see what's not happening and then you just go away for the rest of the day, the rest of the week. You come back to it and go, that's it, I can see it now. And then you rewrite. Mm. Right. For me, a lot of it has to do with structure. So I've got things in the wrong order, in the wrong place, they're going too fast or too slow. And so, as I'm writing it, I'm getting, I'm boring myself. This is wrong. This is wrong. I go away. I'm like, ah, that's why you have it. That's why it's not working. You've got everything in the wrong order. You know, it's not happening in the at the right time. And When I put things in the right order, then they just seem to flow.
0: But you, but you're kind to yourself you, oh, in, during those moments. You, you, you know enough now to know that you have to just step away for a bit and.
3: Not always. You sit there bashing at it for two or three hours until you throw until I throw up my hands going, Oh, what a waste of a morning. I could have yeah. like done anything else and it would have been better, but it's often not until I've bashed my head against the computer for three hours that I realize it's it's not gonna start working today.
1: But Just you do have that discipline it. at least where you go, right, I'm gonna set that time aside each week, two days a week. Mm. So if if it's not working do you just stop and go and do something else and a lot some more time or do you go, I've only got that much time?
3: It works both ways. Now right. that I don't have that much time, I've often spent some days thinking about it so there's there's less chance of it not working because I've worked through some of the problems in my head already, sometimes mm. consciously, sometimes unconsciously in the back of my mind. Then other times I just have a terrible week. I'm too tired. Mm. There's nothing I can do.
1: <laughs> so the book's been out for only for like a week, right? So yeah, about two weeks, so are three we weeks. So are we your first interview for the, for the actual uh, book? Third. Oh, God. No. <laughs> we're way <laughs> down the line, George. Oh, yeah, no. <laughs> no,
0: we should have got in early.
1: Well, well, I tried to. As soon as I it saw is... it on Facebook, I, I messaged Mick and I said, I wonder if Tessa would be interested in doing an interview with us. I didn't send her the link. I thought that was probably a key. If we send her the link to the float your boat, she might say no. Yeah,
3: <laughs> <laughs> smart move. No, I, I, I went and listened to
0: some of your podcasts. Oh, you? Well, I
3: went and listened to Mark's especially. Yeah. So I'm yeah. like, I know, Mark, yeah.
0: listen. Yeah, right.
3: That's
2: great.
0: So obviously we impressed you enough. <laughs> to get, to get <laughs> we passed we <laughs> uh, the bar. <laughs> tell, tell, tell us, Tess, what makes, what makes for a good novel, a good story? What, what, what are the key elements that you think are important
3: I'm only going to talk for myself. Of course. Mm. Because it's very subjective and I am very glad that there's a wide range of literature out there because I also read very widely. Mm. When and I'm going to make this your question even narrower if you don't mind. Sure. When I was writing April in Paris 1921, I was looking for something very specific. Having done my doctorate in trauma fiction and war fiction, I wanted something light-hearted. Well, having done it, read a lot of literary fiction. I wanted something more structured and, like genre, crime, spy thrillers. And I'd been reading a lot of them. I'd been reading a lot of romance as well. It's like a drug. Even if I think the novel is terrible, I still sit there for hours and zip through it. So I, so I wanted. But I, sorry, as I was zipping through the romance novels, there's so much that made me. ...angry about the structures of the relationship... ...and how women were treated... ...and how women sacrificed everything for love. I'm like, that's not the basis of a good relationship... ...to give up everything you've ever known... ...for a man you barely... ...like you've only just met. There are a lot, so I wanted to write something that addressed... ...the problems I had in romance. I wanted to write something fun and lighthearted, ...but that still addressed some of my doctoral concerns... ...like how do you tell a war story... I wanted a first-person narrative. I wanted strong characters. I particularly wanted strong female characters. I wanted the structure of a crime novel which resolves at the end. I wanted it to be set in a vintage time, shall we say, particularly the interwar period, the 20s and 30s leading up to World War II. It was really hard to find something that had all of these very specific things that I wanted. Often something would have a few of those things, but particularly what I found to be the problem is that everything was quite dark. And there's also a, everything addressed things like domestic violence and sexual violence as well, particularly recently. And when I was pregnant and breastfeeding, I just, I just couldn't handle that kind of violence and cruelty in my imagination as well as in the world. So after a while, I just went, that's it. You're going to have to write it yourself. This is what you do. So I actually sat down and wrote the book under a pseudonym to give myself maximum freedom to let myself be as outrageous and put in everything that I wanted in the book and that was the result. It's so that's, so. in terms of what you're asking, what do I want? I like strong structure, strong characters, snappy dialogue and lyrical description. This is what I look for in a book.
0: And you couldn't have found a better place than to, to set it in Paris during the, uh, you know, the... the
3: 1920s. Yeah, during
0: Mm. the 1920s, which was, a you know, like a very...
3: Wild time.
0: Wild Mm. time. Wild women that Mm. were very, you know, dominant and and probably shirking off the old, you know, the old attitudes towards Mm. relationships with men, like, Mm. you know, how they had to be. Mm. They were reinventing themselves.
3: Mm. Necessarily. I mean, Mm. there were... A lot of men had died.
2: Mm.
3: And the women that had worked as nurses had had some very difficult experiences, but not only difficult experiences <coughs> but also they'd gone out into the world. They'd had to, they'd had to go into the factories, they'd had to become bus conductors, they'd had to become nurses and then to, say, go back, return to the home with knowing that you'd never have a husband because they were dead, they were in France, or return to service if you were a working-class woman, knowing that you could earn much more in a factory and have time off as mm. well. Yeah. Women were not going to do that. Everything had changed, so it was it was not it was just not possible emotionally as well as sort of physically, literally. So they just went forward with gusto, mm. made it new.
0: I, I once I once had it said by a Frenchman that uh, the reason why you know there were so many the French um, accept extramarital affairs is because for about 120 years they they were con- you know. Every 20 years or so, they were they would involve themselves in a very big war and lose a lot of men. <laughs> yeah, right. And there weren't enough men to go around, so the women were okay having.
1: And that's pretty convenient for it's that, that Frenchman to tell that bloke you that. Seven,
0: that bloke had seven <laughs> mistresses, by the way. Good grief! <laughs> and yeah, he wondered why his, wife, uh, his life was complicated.
2: Mm.
0: <laughs> yeah, well very convenient, George. So that's, a, that's
3: a very, con- yeah, very yeah. convenient <laughs> theory. <laughs> yeah. oh, I
0: just wondered in your research whether you came across any facts. <laughs>
3: uh, I don't. I, that's not what I researched, why do French men have affairs. But there were there are certainly different attitudes to sex and sexual relations in France compared to Britain, which yes. is why a lot of people went to Paris. They could yes. be a bit more free, especially why people like Oscar Wilde went to Paris mm. Because they they're like I, you know, yeah. can't handle this this Puritanism that's going on in England or that's going on in America. Yes. And here, even if it's not accepted, it's not frowned upon. It's just,
2: there, just it's yeah. just
3: something, and you can be yourself. And that's not just men, but women as well. Mm. Just being able to be themselves in a cosmopolitan city like Paris. Mm.
1: So, uh, are you going to? Um do an audio version of the book? Does that happen?
3: (laughs) Uh, Hopefully. It's not in the works So you have to
1: find some. Will you read it? I
3: have have no idea. That would be great. That would be great fun. Because you've
1: got a great voice. I've been sitting here listening thinking, wow, she's got a really lovely voice (laughs) drifting
3: off. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that would be great fun. The only thing I would say is there's a lot of dialogue that I don't use, he he said, she said, he said, she said. So there's a lot of um, uh, exchanges between Kiki Button, my heroine, Mm -hmm. and one of her best friends, Bertie Brown. So what I was thinking is that if it is read aloud, it would be great to be more performed reading so that you could get these snappy dialogue, bang, 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 with the two voices. That would be more fun. Fantastic. And it's, it's all written in the first person as well. So when I imagine an audio version, it actually has a cast of actors come in to be able to go bang, bang, bang with these like snappy
2: dialogue things. Like the old style things. of, of Radio play, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Which,
0: which they don't. Oh, do. yeah, with
3: the coconuts.
0: Yes, that's right.
3: I want coconuts.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, that yeah. would be
3: so great. <laughs> uh,
0: which, which they don't, which they, funny enough, I, I listen to a lot of. Um, audio books. Yeah, and yeah, They yeah. don't do that
3: enough. Not in not in audio books. No, but the, if you listen to the BBC podcasts, drama podcasts, oh, yeah, they, they do. do. You can yeah. hear the person with the washboard and the the maracas and the jingling the keys. And oh, you, you know. you'll have to
1: tell me some podcasts. I'm I'm so bored with pod, most of the podcasts uh, apart from, on from this one, one, of course. I oh, No, no, I mean I've got some of my favourites but, mm. but uh, like Ed's Variety Hour. Do you listen to that one? No, I haven't oh, heard a, that one. That's a rockabilly one. Yeah,
3: uh, right. Ed's um, Variety Hour. Yeah, I'll look it
1: up. It's great. Um, and, and I like there's certain ones but there's a lot of really bad podcasts out there. I hope we're not one of those. <laughs> Absolutely not.
3: Absolutely <laughs> so,
1: not. So, um, so what's the next? Are you into the next project or are you really focused on promoting now? No, this? I'm
3: writing Kiki 2. All right, mm, which is super fun. Uh, it's it helps to it actually helps with the promotion because imaginatively, I'm not in a different space. I'm still in the same space. Right. So this is set in April in Paris in 1921, as the title suggests, mm-hmm. and the next book is set in September. Nineteen twenty one, a few months, about five months after this book, so okay. it's like can the Can I next guess the title? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you can. That would be. I haven't. I haven't decided. Actually, oh, April in Paris, nineteen twenty one, was my working title, and I didn't know what else to call it, but it stuck. So it stuck. It's great. It also, I, I had given it that title because I was thinking of the jazz song, hmm. April in Paris. And I wanted when people saw it to have that song start to play (sighs) through their mind. April
2: in Paris, chestnuts in blossom. Well, I. That was so hard.
3: The question you asked me. But when I thought about it, I thought it's gotta be a song that you dance to. It's gotta be the song that you could never sit down for. So I chose My Baby Just Cares for Me, the Nina Simone version. Because when that when that is played on the dance floor, it doesn't matter if it's, you know, nine o'clock and the night's just started or three AM and the night's just finishing. The DJ will play that song and everybody just goes, Yes. It's the most beautiful swing dance song it's the it is yeah it's a beautiful song and it's so joyful and her voice is so So rich Mm -hmm. so rich um and it both speaks to something that's very sort of contemporary you know because she recorded in the 60s and 70s but also much more the old-timey jazz which is what the swing dancing is based Mm. on it sort of manages to fuse both together which is how Contemporary swing dancers live their life in a modern world listening to and thinking about what had happened 80, you know, 70, 80 years ago. So, yeah, yeah.
1: Have you got anything more to add to that, George? No, that's a beautiful song. Tessa, yes. thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you. You weren't nervous at all. <laughs> no. And, and it's because I'll
3: of you guys. You're and so and good luck with the
1: book. Thank, thank you so, so much. You know, September, September in Paris.
3: September in Paris maybe we're, the next we'll one. We'll get you
1: back in for that when that's out.
3: <laughs> we're happy I to promote. I hope so. That would be great. But for this one you have to buy April in Paris, 1921. Oh, and, and where's
1: the best place to buy it now?
3: Uh, the best place to buy it is bookshops around Australia yep. or Booktopia.
1: Okay. Tessa, thank you very much. Thank you, Thank you, you
3: Tess. <laughs>
0: We from Float Your Boat would like to thank you listeners for uh, listening in, but we also like to thank our crew, wouldn't we, Brett? We would, our crew. Our crew being me, being you, You. and? Donovan Jenks.
1: Donnie Darko,
0: also known as Darko.
1: So usually they say edited
0: by and produced by, and our team of people. Well, they're not that refined, and we don't have a team. Well, we do have a team, but it's a very small team, of multi-skilled people, and that's just... Darker, really. It's just he's Donovan T, Janks. He's tea lady. He's the tea lady. <laughs> he's the producer. He's the editor. He's the sound man. He's everything. He
1: is. He's and a, and he makes us look good, doesn't he? And he's just starting out in the sound mm. business, um, and uh, he's he's exceptionally talented. Thank you, darker. Thanks, thanks, Donny.